0: As we said before, the last couple weeks, we're in Galatians now. Uh, we're in the first chapter still today. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 24. We're going to try to get through the rest of chapter 1 today. See how, how that goes here. Should should be able to, though. Um, I know I've got a couple of my kids staying up for this because they, to my neglect, they don't know the full conversion story of Paul. So we're going to talk about Paul a little bit today. Um <clears throat> just as a little recap for the last couple Sundays here, so at the beginning of this of this epistle, Paul had Paul comes in, he doesn't give any compliments to the Galatians like he normally would. he goes right into the gospel, and then he marvels that they have so quickly left it for a false gospel and we had we had a lot of good talk about that uh, last week. Um, you know, they've went to this perverted, lifeless gospel, and he's just shocked that they've so quickly done this. And then he warns against the preaching of such a thing by man or by an angel. And so that leaves us where we're at now, on verses ten through twenty-four, where he's going to talk more of his ministry, and he's going to give his testimony. So, I'm going to read through that real quick here, and then we'll we'll go through it a little bit. So, starting at verse 10, it says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel which was preached to me is not of human invention, For I neither received it from man, nor I was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But but when He who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him for fifteen days but I did not see another one of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what, I, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. But they only kept hearing, the man who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy." and they were glorifying God because of me. So, there is a lot in there, uh, but it does really kind of fall in in what we kind of prefaced here where he's speaking of his ministry and he's giving his testimony to to the Galatians. So, verse 10 here we're starting with. "For, For am I now seeking the favor of people or of God? Or am I striving to please people? So there's two thoughts on this when I read these. Two thoughts. That one, when Paul is speaking to others, as obviously said here, he does not care if he's pleasing them. That's not the goal. Two would be that God was and is Paul's immediate audience. People are secondary. So he spoke first to God, he was concerned with pleasing God. So when we think of something like this, when we read through this, the thought that should enter our minds is, is God our primary audience? Because if we don't think He is, the joke's on us, because God is always our primary audience. Even when we don't think He is, Uh, Hebrews 4.13 talks about this well when it says, And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him whom we must answer. So the idea that God is not seeing what we're doing, that He is not our primary audience when we speak, Scripture goes plainly against that. So even according to this scripture, the non-believer cannot hide something from God, cannot say something that God doesn't hear. But even if it was possible, let's say it was possible for the non-believer to do that. The believer certainly cannot. Because God lives in us. We We are the temple of God now. The Spirit resides in us. If you want to talk about accountability, that is the ultimate accountability partner. Remember we talked of that uh, two or three weeks ago. So, it's not your conscience that tells you when, when something is wrong or when you feel ashamed of something. The Spirit is condemning us when we do something that we shouldn't do. When we think something we shouldn't think. And that's that's the ultimate shame, I would say. <clears throat> so God, though is our primary audience always. Just keep that in mind. And if that is a source of contention for a person, the issue is not God. The issue is, is us and something like that. You know, it's, it's to us to not quench the Spirit that's in us. It's in, uh, it's in us to embrace Him who is residing in us, whose goal is not to condemn us, but it's to sanctify us, to make us more Christ-like. Because He loves us, that's why He's doing these things. So Paul doesn't outright say it here, but he basically is making a contrast between the Gospel that he preached and the Gospel that the Galatians are hearing now. That false Gospel, that different Gospel that according to what Paul is saying here, was built around pleasing men's ears. So he says, "But if I were trying to please people, I would not be a bondservant of Christ." So he's very simply stating this. He's pretty direct in it. He's not trying if he's if he's not trying to please Christ, then he's not a bondservant of Christ. Now, why why is it so black and white like that? So, if you, I don't know if anybody has a King James with them or not. Does it say bondservant there, or does it say slave? <laughs> it it might say slave. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, bond servant is the translation in most of the Bibles. However. This word is also this Greek word is also used for slave, and that in some ways maybe is a little bit of a better translation, only because of the fact when people hear bond servant, they don't always really know what it means. So because we don't use it, we don't use that word nowadays. Okay. <laughs> um, well, sure. Okay, the Greek word is a doulos. Which is uh, it's from another word, which is a slave, right. literally figuratively, involuntarily, or figuratively, involuntary or voluntarily, and it's so frequently therefore qualified sense of subjection. Mm-hmm. So, in Romans, makes this pretty clear of why it's important to think of it like this. So, we go into Romans chapter six, twenty-two through twenty-three, and it speaks of this, and it says, "But now, having been freed from sin." So there's the the precursor that we have been freed from something that we were a slave to. And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, and the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are freed from that soul-crushing, from that life-ending thing, which is sin, but we are enslaved to God. We are enslaved to God, and He makes us more Christ-like, and He gives us eternal life. That is, that is the true meaning of being a slave here, of being a bond servant. So <clears throat> the idea here is that, as a slave, this is not of your own will. That's why Paul says, if, I w- if I'm not trying to please Christ, I'm not in Christ, is basically what he's saying. Because he is a slave to Christ now. <clears throat> but I would, and this is uh, verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel which was preached to me is not of human invention. So we, when we keep in context what's going on here, We know that Paul is speaking directly to these people in Galatia who are coming with this false gospel. That's what he's doing. Because he's saying, you guys are bringing a gospel which is man-made. Now sometimes, maybe we do need to be taught by men. Like when we go to school, we learn history, math, things like that. But, Paul is bringing the Gospel of Christ, which is a more valuable lesson. So that's a lesson in godliness, a lesson in how we should live. And that, Paul is saying here, requires a revelation from God, not theories from men, which abound and change all the time. I mean, if you ever follow different theories on, in psychiatry and things like that, they're not the same as they were a hundred years ago because they don't know. So, in verse 12, though, Paul says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a really interesting spot here. If you haven't really paid attention to this before, this is a good time to to think about this. Paul's Gospel experience, at least according to what we've read here, when we see other people in, in Scripture as well, His gospel experience was unique. Think of it, um, let's compare it to to Romans 10 real quick. So Romans 10, 13, 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So when we compare that to what Paul said, what we hear is that Paul is saying he was not taught this. He was not he did not hear this from men. Like we would normally have heard the gospel. Now I'm not saying that this is completely exclusive to Paul. I'm not saying that other people could not have heard the gospel like this, but we are saying that up to here, this is very unique in the way that Paul heard the gospel. So Paul's experience was very dramatic. Not because of him, but just the experience itself was very dramatic, and it was a direct revelation according to Scripture. So, like I said, we're saying that he had not been preached to So I do want to, since we're talking about this, and it and it seems like you kind of have to cover it when you go through here. I want to briefly talk about Paul's road to Damascus experience. Okay, Um, this is in Acts chapter nine. I'm going to give a brief overview of it. I'm not going to read it line by line. So um, just a quick overview of it, so we know what happened to Paul and what he's talking about here when he says that. I wasn't taught this, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have Paul, who is Saul at the time, right? Saul is still issuing threats, threats towards Christians. He wants to murder them. This is all directed at the Christian church, which has exploded in Jerusalem and is starting to spread. So Paul is about to journey to Damascus. And he's hoping, this is the mindset of what he had, he's hoping as he goes to and from Damascus that he can run into people of the way. People of the way are, of course, Christians. That's what they were calling them back then, apparently. And he's hoping he runs into them because he has permission to take them, to bind them up, and to drag them to Jerusalem to put them in jail. That's what he wants to do to these Christians. That is the mindset of the person who, is, who we are following now. And he goes as he's journeying through Damascus and a light comes down upon him. Not the light of the sun, but a heavenly light surrounds him. This is not common, right? We can say this is probably not common. And he also, when this light comes upon him, he hears an audible, not in his head, but he hears an audible voice from heaven. And he falls to the ground. He's terrified. He can't believe what's going on here. And the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So two two things happened right here when Paul heard this voice. Two things happened here. He just had two revelations that you might not know about. So Paul just heard the voice of God calling down to him. At the time, a lot of the religious elite in Judaism did not believe that this happened anymore. Paul wasn't a a religious elite. He would not have believed that this was possible. And yet here is God audibly speaking to him. The other revelation that Paul has just gotten from God is that the heretics that he was persecuting, the heretics that he was gathering up, throwing in jail, he wasn't persecuting them, he was persecuting God. Persecuting God's people. So he has just learned two things in that very brief sentence. And so he says, who are you? But he doesn't just say, who are you? He says, who are you, Lord? He knows who he's talking to. And the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, there are Jesus or Yeshua would have been a very common name back then. There were a lot of Jesus's, But we see here that Paul knew who was talking to him. We have to remember that though it's not stated in Acts, Paul being part of most likely the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, he probably knew who Jesus was at least by name. If he didn't actually see him, he would have heard of him. And he may or not have uh, even sat in judgment of him before the crucifixion. Now, that's speculation, but either way, he would have known who Jesus was at this time. So, Paul is astonished, and he is not just in awe. He is trembling. Now, quite generally, when we're trembling, which I can't think of the last time I trembled, but it would be out of fear. So Paul is afraid of what's going on right now. He's on the ground, on his face, This light is on him. The Lord is talking to him and he is trembling. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? So the Lord tells him, Arise and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. So, Paul is having this not so warm and fuzzy experience and he is told where he needs to go. He is obviously blinded from this. But, You would imagine Paul is probably laying on the ground and his eyes are probably clenched shut at this bright light, but he can't keep it out. He can't keep the light of Christ out of his life, even if he wanted to. And we notice, though, Paul asks the Lord two things here. Okay? Two keeps coming up, but he asks him two things. He says, Lord, he says, Who are you, Lord? And he says, What do you want me to do? So this is probably information that I would imagine hasn't changed much. But in the 90s, they did a they did a Gallup poll, and it was the the top questions, top five questions that people wanted to ask God. Okay. And there was the top five were Will there ever will there ever be lasting world peace? How can I be a better person? What does the future hold for my family and me? Will there ever be a cure for all disease? And why is there suffering in the world? Those were the top five questions that people asked in the scallop poll. Now of all these questions, obviously Paul asked the better ones. He said, who are you? And we know that in Scripture, in Jesus, we see the qualities of God and we can spend our life trying to understand these with the Spirit of God in us. So Paul knows, he asks a question that we obviously have the answer to. But the other one he asks is, what do you want me to do? So this is a really good question, obviously. But it's an earnest question that a lot of people don't really want to ask. God, what do you want me to do? Because a lot of times, we just want to do what we want to do. And sometimes what God would have us do is so far off of our plans that we're like, no, that can't be right. That can't be it. But Paul asks. He's submitting to Jesus Christ, and he says, what do you want me to do, Lord? So, here's the unique part here. Paul is not hallucinating. There are other people with Paul and they hear, but they didn't see the... I don't know if they saw the light there in that, in that set of Scripture, but they, at the very least, they heard this voice from heaven. And they couldn't see who was talking. So Paul is blind now, and he is led by hand to Damascus. And he goes three days. Think about this. Three days is a long time to me. But he goes three days blind, without food and without water. He is so shaken by this. He is so spiritually and physically shaken that he won't even eat or drink for three days. That is a long time to go without food and water. He has had an encounter with God. And some would say that he was spiritually dying to himself. So in Damascus, though, while this is happening... Ananias has an encounter with God. And it's a drastically different encounter with God. Ananias, he said, the Lord says something to him. He says, Ananias. And what does Ananias say? He doesn't drop to the floor. This is a different encounter. He says, Here I am, Lord. That's how it went. Here I am. He says, Arise and go to a certain house. He, goes, he tells him what street. He says, Go to a certain house and find Saul of Tarsus, and he'll be praying. He will have seen you in a vision coming to him, laying hands on him and receiving his sight. And him receiving his sight. Now this is God working through somebody who is not a prophet. This is God working through somebody who is not an apostle. He might not even have been a pastor or an evangelist. He's an ordinary man, and he was slightly resistant to this because meeting Saul is a dangerous thing to do for a Christian. But God is very specific with him. He tells him which street, he tells him which house, he tells him which man, he says what he's going to be doing, and he tells him the vision that Saul would be having of him coming to him. Now it's interesting that that God tells Ananias here that Saul is going to be praying. And I would imagine that Saul has probably been praying since he saw the light, since he was blinded. And if you think about this, this may be the first time in Saul's life that he's had real prayers. Because he is now probably praying to Jesus as his mediator. He's praying most likely in Jesus' name, which is different from what Paul would have done before. And he's probably coming to him with a very humble heart to God. So Ananias says to God before he leaves, He says, Lord, I've heard about this man. I've heard about the bad things he's doing to Christians. And and God tells him, I want you to go and do this. This man is a chosen vessel of mine, and he's going to bear My name before the Gentiles, before the kings, before the children of Israel. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for My name's sake. So Ananias knew of Saul, that's how good, how big his name was. And he knew of Saul's former mission. And he thought that he would educate God on who Saul was. But Saul was being called to a higher life with less privilege and much suffering. So Ananias, he goes to Saul. This man that he fears, this man that has been throwing people in jail, and he calls him brother. He says, Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me that you would receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. Now, this would appear to be when, Paul, when Saul was born again. When his physical and his spiritual blindness were healed, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is a clear example that God can and will reach anybody. Nobody is above reproach. So, I would be a little remiss here if I didn't cover the end there of 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 that summary of Acts. I think it's uh, verse seventeen or eighteen. It kind of jumped out at me. Yeah, it is seventeen and eighteen. Um, so he says, "I want to read that the actual scriptures of that where it says." So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fish scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. I want to just briefly talk about how it talks of of Saul being baptized there. So, the same word, baptizo, which is probably a horrible pronunciation of it, is used for water baptism, and it's used for, being, for baptism of the Spirit. I think, and this is up for debate, I'm sure, if anybody has thoughts on this at the end, please share them, but I think that this is kind of a clear example that you don't have to be water baptized to be saved, because... Like I said, this word is used interchangeably, but Ananias was sent to Paul so that he could regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that is a baptism of the Spirit when the Spirit comes upon you. That's that baptism that Jesus talked about. And Paul talks about this. He gives clarity on it, I think, in Acts 22. 11 through 16, because he re-summarizes this event. He summarizes this event in Acts 22, and he says, But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I came into Damascus, being led by hand by those who were with me. Now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well-spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing nearby, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight." And at that very moment, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the message from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now here's the at the end here. He says, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by the calling on his name. That's the key there. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by the calling of His name. So that goes right with Paul's statements here. In uh, 1 Corinthians, where he talks of baptism a little bit more. I'm bringing these in just to kind of tie it together. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, "...such were some of you, but you were washed." and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So, it would appear that that baptism that Paul had was a baptism of the Spirit. So, I just wanted to cover that real briefly, but that is a background of what happened to Paul and what he's bringing forth when he talks of his testimony to people, So let's get uh, back on track here for a second. Um, back to verse 13 in our text today, uh, 13 through 17. It says, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I used it to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So, For you have heard. Like I said before, Paul is giving his testimony. It's a very dramatic experience. However, just because we don't have a dramatic experience, and maybe you did, but everybody's is different, and every testimony shows the glory of God. It shows God working in our life. Just because Paul had this experience doesn't mean yours is going to be so blatant. Maybe it will be. Maybe it won't. But that's how Paul's was. And so he's using his powerful testimony because testimonies are great and the tools for evangelizing. They help us to relate to people because we all once were not saved. So he talks of his former way of life. You have to remember, Paul approved of Stephen being stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. He approved of that in Acts 8. He has people drug out of their house, women women and men drug out of their house and thrown in prison for being in alignment with Christ. These why 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 do we say this? We're not building up Paul. We say this because this shows that Paul was not looking for a revelation. He was not looking for something different in his life. He liked what he was doing. He liked being part of the Sanhedrin. He liked being an elitist. He liked this because he believed it to be true, and he didn't want anything different. So we have somebody who was not looking for new revelation who was given it. That is the difference. When you find people who are looking for revelation outside of of Scripture, they're looking for something non-Scriptural. And that's when we start getting into like we talked about, the people who have brought up these false religions. They are looking for something different. They don't want what God has established. Paul wasn't looking, but but God came and He showed him what was true. So, verse 15 here, it says, But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb called me through his grace was pleased. This is a really powerful verse because if you're a Christian, hallelujah, you have received something that you did not deserve and you have received it like Paul did, not when he wanted it, but when God said you were going to have it. That is the key there. We've received grace when God through his grace was pleased. Paul didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but we have it. Thank God. So Paul wasn't special. That's the key here. Paul was not special. We have all been sinners before God, just like Paul was. And God has called us, like Paul, and we were born again. So Paul didn't choose the time. God did. And that is the mystery of of God's timing, because I mean I can't think of how many times I thought, well, it'd be nice if I'd have known all this maybe 20 years before that, right? My life might have been a little different, but my life has went the way that God has wanted it to go. <clears throat> so, as the Scripture says here, Paul has been set apart. This is something that you have to kind of do your homework a little bit on Judaism, okay? So Paul is saying that he is now set apart in Christ. But, Paul was a Pharisee. So the actual meaning of the word of Pharisee Pharisee is one who is separated. So Paul, all his life, believed he was separated. So this... Now Paul has been separated, truly separated to God. This is what happens when Jesus is revealed to Paul. This is what happens when when, um, when Jesus is revealed in our lives. When you become a Christian, you become separated from the rest of the world. You do things different. You think of things differently. You don't have the same value system. That is that separation Paul thought he was separated all his life, and he was wrong. Only upon that road to Damascus did he really learn what being separated was. So verse 16, and we're we're almost done here. Verse 16 uh, says, "...to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles." You're going to have to excuse the term, but for Paul, this would have really been a kick in the crotch. I mean, he just was told that he was to preach... Among the Gentiles, Paul, being a Pharisee, probably had the belief that that not, not only did he hate the Gentiles, but that they were the common belief back then was that they were the fuel for the fires in hell. And yet, Paul is being told that he is to preach salvation to them. And he didn't need to consult with flesh and blood. Because the gospel had been revealed to him by Jesus Christ. I'm going to cover these last couple verses and then we'll then we'll be done here. Uh, The end there where it says, uh, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him for fifteen days. But I did not see another one of the apostles except James the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown by by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ. Only they kept hearing, and this is the key for, for the end here, the man who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. So this is Paul putting a capstone on when somebody is converted to the faith. Great things happen. Great changes happen. People are different. But not only that, he is emphasizing that when these things happen, people see it. Other people see it. And it glorifies God when they do. So Paul is not saying to glorify Him. He is saying in that prior sentence, that that's why they're glorifying God, because Paul had went around and he had persecuted and killed people who were Christians, and now he was spreading the gospel. So when we become a Christian, we live like a Christian. That's why they were able to to say that there was a change in Paul. Not because he was living the law, but because he had true repentance. Remember, true repentance is a change of mind. So people see that, and God is glorified. So Paul's background, which we went through very briefly here, his testimony, just like ours, glorifies God, and God uses that for the evangelizing of other people. It's not just a passive story in your life that you never bring up. It's something that you can testify of. So remember your testimony. Remember the Gospel. And keep it at the tip of your tongue because God can use that to save somebody someday. You don't know when or how God is going to use your testimony, but it's there for a reason.